News Power Hour. It's a warm welcome to you to this uh, day's edition of the Biz News Power Hour. It's the 11th of November and a most unusual one. I've spent the morning in lockup. And Nadia, you and I had a chat about this earlier. We're going to be playing that discussion later in the program. The mini budget. What was your thought after our discussion? I was delightfully surprised because your general sort of disposition afterwards was quite positive And we need that. Well, let's hope that uh, that's an agreed <laughs> feeling when uh, the rest of the community get to listen to it. Justin, you've been busy today. You've had a number of interviews. I'm not sure we're going to be able to get around to all of them, but what was the top one? Alec, firstly, thanks for bringing the good weather to Cape Town. What a pleasure. And then it's always nice when you're going to bed more intelligent than when you wake up. I managed to speak to Peter Ace, Remgro's chief investment officer. Big deal on the cards there. Vodacom taking a stake in Vimital and Dark Fiber Africa, this is uh, Remgro's real growth baby going forward and a very exciting transaction going on there. Lots of synergies uh, in the fiber business from a Vodacom perspective and then CIVH, which holds the Vimital and Dark Fiber Africa. Then secondly, moving on to Charles Savage, uh, CEO of the Purple Group and Easy Equities. Obviously, that forms part of the business portfolio. It's been doing unbelievably in the business portfolio, 70, 80% in, in the matter of a few months. Uh, things are going really well there. It's firing on all cylinders, according to Charles Savage, and the numbers back that up. And then lastly, as is customary for a Thursday, Pitful Yun, uh, the most rational, uh, one of the most rational minds in the South African asset management game, gives us a brief overview of what has happened this week and all the interesting developments on the JSC. He does indeed. It's always good to have Pitt pulling everything together. So it's a heck of a show coming up. Uh, Jared, you can give us the insights, though, before we get on to uh, the rest of the programming on what the community is watching, listening to and reading. Thanks, Alec. On our website, biznews.com, forget the calls for data's head. Focus on the real issues at ESCOM. Stephen Nathan on Big Pharma, Aspen and Ascendus. And Phil Craig on the local election results being positive for Cape Independence are among the most popular articles. On Business TV on YouTube, a look at the man behind Action Essay, founder Herman Mashaba, yesterday's flash briefing, and Treasury One's Andre Salias as the Jan's volatility continues are the most watched videos. And lastly, on Business Radio on Spotify, yesterday's Power Hour. Peter Major on Northam intercepting Impala Platinum's target and the coalition dilemma, how not to re-empower a wounded ANC, that's a piece by Pete Krokamp, are the most listened to podcasts. Thanks, Jared. Let's get on to the markets. Right Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Okay, Nadia, so what's in the headlines? SARS said its concerted effort to clamp down on tax non-compliance has resulted in 172 billion rand for the fiscus drawn across all tax types. However, the Revenue Service warned that tax compliance was under strain, dropping from 65% to 62%. Tax morality is heavily tied to a well-run and efficient government. 
over the last decade, widespread corruption and wasteful spending have not instilled this morality in taxpayers. SARS's compliance drive yielded 12 billion rand in debt collections from large businesses, 42 billion rand from high wealth individuals, and 6.8 billion rand from corporates. The balance was collected from the voluntary disclosure program, outstanding returns, and targeted criminal investigations. Former State President F.W. de Klerk died at his home in Cape Town on Thursday at the age of 85. Referred to as the last white ruler of South Africa, de Klerk shared the Nobel Peace Prize in 1993 with Nelson Mandela for their work for the peaceful termination of the apartheid regime and for laying the foundations for a new democratic South Africa. And Finance Minister Enoch Gorongwana presented his inaugural budget speech today in which he resisted pressure to use the fiscal space that has delivered a 120 billion rand boost to tax revenue and faster GDP growth from commodities windfall to announce new spending commitments, including meeting demands for a basic income grant. The budget was largely in line with what former Finance Minister Tito Mbuweni had said and maintained the plan to achieve a primary surplus in 2024 or 2025. Gorongwana was firm that the current fiscal framework stood and that he and Mbuweni were on the same wavelength on everything, including disappointment with the slow implementation of structural economic reforms. The budget addressed the critical electricity crisis in the country and confirmed that it is now official policy for SA to diversify energy generation and that the state will be taking additional steps towards a competitive energy market. And now it's to Justin for the market report. Thanks, Nards. The JSE All Share Index is slightly higher at 69,000. In the currency markets, the rand is weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand 41 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 63 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 66 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,853 an ounce. Kruger Rand will cost you around 30,000 rand. Brain crude is lower, trading at $82.50 a barrel. And Bitcoin is trading around the million rand per coin mark. In the financial news, clothing retailer the Fashini Group has seen a rebound in its performance, with its retail turnover growing by 51.8% to 19 billion rand in the six months ended 30 September 2021, some 12% higher than it was pre-COVID. The group, which owns the exact At Home and Fabiani brands, released its interim results on Thursday. In a statement, the group explained that its turnover growth was aided by market share gains, the expansion of its footprint and brand portfolio, as well as growth in online retail turnover. TFG's total revenue for the period was 20.4 billion rand. Its gross profit increased by 6% to 9.3 billion rand, and its headline earnings per share grew by 600% to 4 rand per share, a recovery from a loss of 80 cents per share in 2020. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. At Bright Rock, we believe that change can unlock amazing opportunities. We've partnered with industry leaders to provide you with tips and tools to help you navigate life's big change moments. Welcome to this week's thought leadership feature made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs mesh life insurance that changes as your life changes. I'm Nadja Swart for Biz News, and I'm here with Biz News founder Alec Hogg, who Early this morning, went into lockup hours before Enoch Gorongwana's inaugural presentation of the budget policy statement to Parliament. So there was a lot of anticipation surrounding this because it was his first and also a lot of pressure because South Africa sort of needed him to, 
you know, be able to convince foreign investors that there's light at the end of the tunnel for our economy. So overall, what was your impression? Nadia, I haven't had uh, the pleasure of meeting Mr. Godanguana before. I do remember him getting into the headlines some years ago over an organization called Canyon Springs, where it was all kinds of allegations were made against him. And for most politicians, that would have been the end of their careers. But in his case, clearly those allegations couldn't have had as much uh, substance to them as some people were reporting. Otherwise, he just you'd never put a, a guy who was supposed to have done such terrible things as the head of your financial uh, organization in the country. So I was just waiting to see how he came across, what his energy was like, as you would. And I was quite impressed, actually. Uh, he, he was in command. He was relaxed. Uh, he, he was quite uh, engaging with the journalists who asked different questions. He'd obviously met a few of them and, and addressed them by name. Not, not Tito engaged, but remember, Tito has been on the block for a long time. Uh, I, uh, my relationship with Tito Mboweni goes back to literally to 1991. So there's a different type of engagement. But I did like uh, what I heard from him for a couple of reasons. First of all, he didn't try and dominate the conversation, uh, which one of his predecessors, Malusi Gagaba, really used to do. He, he spoke a lot of nonsense, as politicians can do, but dominated the conversation and actually never gave you any answers. Tito was a lot more fun. Uh, he would uh, have a quip here and there. Uh, and before him, Pravin Gordon also had his quips, which is a, a sign of, of great intelligence, usually these guys who, who, are, who are quite funny. Uh, Mr. Or Enoch, let's call him Enoch, it's just easier, uh, is, a, is an interesting guy. He's also quite funny. Uh, but what I, I really liked about him, as you could see, he's a, he's a good manager. Uh, when he got questions, he's been in the job, as he said to us, for 106 days. He didn't, doesn't, wouldn't have had complete grasp yet of what the portfolio is. So when there were questions that related to policy, to ANC policy, uh, and we can talk about those in a moment, he was very comfortable answering those. When there were questions to do with the detail, he passed them on. And he had no problem in giving the ball to certain of the members of the Treasury who were in the audience, uh, in the uh, in the large room in the Mbizo Center there in Parliament, or else to pass to uh, the governor of the Reserve Bank, uh, which I like because he's, a, he's clearly a guy who uh, has a, a good, strong power base within the ANC. And when you are the finance minister, that's actually your most important uh, criteria. Are you able to get your colleagues in the cabinet to support you? Trevor Manuel had that. Uh, Derek Keyes in the Government of National Unity had that. Uh, certainly, uh, Pravin Gordon for a period had that, although uh, Zuma didn't really give him much support. And Tito definitely had that. He had the ear of uh, Sir Ramaphosa. And clearly, Enoch Gorondwana has got the same benefit. So there's, uh, this is a guy who's in the right place at the right time. A heck of a job, though, that he's, he's got to tackle. So just after this morning's lockup, you wrote an article about the apocalyptic horsemen of economic impediment. Who are they and what did the budget actually propose to unseat them? Yeah, I liked it a lot. What happened today 
unusually was that the budget speech, which we usually get at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. whenever the lockup opens, depending on, on what part of the country you're in, Pretoria or Cape Town, uh, this time the budget speech wasn't included. Uh, which was maybe because the new minister's only just arrived, maybe his staff don't quite realize how important it is that they give the speech over to the guys from Treasury, who were incredibly efficient. Uh, they they just are one of the, uh, the the pocket of excellence in the South African government. And what this did was it forced me to go through the uh, documents, which usually usually what happens at a at a budget lockup is that you concentrate on the speech, you then pull out the highlights from the speech, and then you have a look at some of the other um, highlights from the documentation, uh, and that's the way you you process it and, and pass it on to your community. This time around, because there was no speech, it was almost like I was forced into going through the documentation, which can be yeah quite dense, uh, but it was brilliant because there was a heck of a lot of information there that you might have lost. The four horsemen uh, analogy was to take uh, the, the structural changes. So if you imagine in South Africa, we've got, we've got two challenges as a finance minister. The one challenge is that the uh, country is spending far too much uh, because of the Zuma era where they actually were so ignorant and they didn't know the, the consequences or didn't care about the consequences of what they were doing. The spending has been growing for the last 13 years in this country by 8.8% a year. Now, you, st- you know the power of compounded, and that is compounded 8.8% puts you in a really dis- desperate situation. Your revenues haven't been coming in, uh, growing by anything like that amount. So the consequences, if you keep spending and there's no revenue, you need debt. And South Africa's debt has just gone off the charts. So that's the one thing. He's going to have to use his political clout and his political nous to get that under control. And I think the fact that he, he's got such a stable and strong position in the party, he's also the head of the ANC's economic um, policy uh, operation. He's the chairman there. And that he's he was uh, Cyril Ramaphosa's colleague in Kosatu in the labor union uh, movement for many, many years, gives him a power base that none of the other finance ministers uh, certainly for going back until Trevor Manuel have actually had. So that's the first point. So that we're going to have to take as a given. We're going to have to believe that he's going to get the spending under control, restraint as he calls it. The second issue though is, and he's said this numerous times in his speech and in the budget documentation from the Treasury, is that it doesn't matter if you get spending under control, which is in itself quite a challenge, if you don't have a growing economy. And the economy is forecast in the next three years to grow on average by 1.7%. That's nowhere near enough. We're growing our population by 1.7%. So we, we, we need much, much faster growth, as he says. So what is he going to do about it? He needs to unlock the private sector. This sounds like obvious stuff to you and I, but to the ANC, a socialist government, a socialist ideological policy uh, a, a kind of mindset, it's big stuff. And the four issues that are being addressed to the structural issues are those four horsemen of the apocalypse, if you like, or the economic apocalypse, which were completely ignored during the Zuma era. And the first one is Eskim, which actually the Zuptas messed up. The second one is Transnet, which they also messed up. Uh, the third one is broadband, where the private sector is messing up. Because uh, the private sector, every time the, the government's trying to do something on broadband and, and get rid of or, or auction off broadband spectrum, which we desperately need, 
the private sector, somewhere in the private sector, decides to take them to court. But that's a democracy and you have to go through that. And the fourth horseman is bureaucracy. Now, on the first point, there's been a lot of progress made on Eskom. And that is uh, the, the biggest bit of progress was that when Godondwana said to us, for the last 13 years in the ANC, we've been trying to fix Eskom. Now we realize we've got to fix the supply of electricity. Again, massive mindset shift. Uh, we were controlling electricity supply in South Africa through Eskom. They will supply you. Don't you dare touch our monopoly. Now it's, oops, Eskom is broken. We can't fix it. We've tried for 13 years. It's not going to happen. So let's get more supply in. And that is why we saw the uh, the increase in the license for independent power producers from one megabyte, uh, <laughs> one megawatt to a hundred megawatts. So that's, and he says that's just a temporary st- stage. That is one, that is the first part of the fixing Eskom bit because they, they are now fully appreciative that if the economy doesn't grow, uh, there's not enough money for taxes, our tax, uh, uh, sorry, for, for spending, for investing in the population. It's a pro poor party. They spend 60% of our uh, tax goes on what's called the social wage. So it's for the poor people. Uh, that's, if you, if you can't give the poor people more, you're never going to fix the, the, the country and never, never develop it. And you can't get the economy going if you haven't got Eskom right or if you haven't got electricity. Forget Eskom, electricity. So that's point one. The second point is the, uh, the government realized how incredibly important the mineral sector is or the mining sector is to South Africa in this last six month period because it didn't bail them out, but it, it certainly uh, helped a heck of a lot with 128 billion rand in extra taxes that came in just because of the commodities boom. Now it doesn't help you if you mining, uh, iron ore, uh, up near Pofader in the Northern Cape, uh, and you can't get it to the ports. And if you can't get it to the ports, that means Transnet are failing in their duty. So that's the second part. So the first part is they can't fix trans, uh, they can't fix Eskom, bring in the private sector there to supply electricity. The second horseman is Transnet. They can't fix Transnet. They know that. So bring in the private sector. How they're going to do that is by opening up rail lines. He actually even said that there's a possibility that they'll follow the British model, which was, uh, let's not call it privatization because you get the trade unions going nuts, but essentially along those lines. So we've got this wonderful mineral, uh, these wonderful mineral resources, which aren't actually getting to the ports now because the only way to get them to the port is because of a monopoly called Transnet. That's the second horseman. Again, the private sector. The third one is broadband. We know in our business, in particular at BizNews, how important broadband is. Uh, Enoch Gorongwana is fully appreciative of that. They are incredibly frustrated by what's happening with the, the their ability or their, their desire to open up broadband. They can't get it right because the private sector uh, loves going to court. Somebody in the private sector is going to take you to court because of the spectrum or because of the, the digital transformation or moving to a digital uh, country, but that seems to be on track for auctioning a broadband in March next year, only four and a half months away. And the fourth one is bureaucracy. And there he focused on a couple of areas. The one was uh, tourism, uh, where the e-visas will make a huge difference. I've heard stories of people in China having to drive or get to Beijing to get a, a visa. So, and China's a big country, but it's not just there. It's Australia. It's all over the world where our visa policies are really crazy. We're sending a lot of potential tourists to other countries. 
The e-visa, which is going to be implemented early next year, is going to transform that and open up our borders for tourism. Another example of that was a, a change that's being made now to skilled uh, immigrants. There are many people uh, who would love to come to South Africa to work, highly skilled people, but the re- regulations that were implemented by the during the Zuma period stops uh, skilled people coming into the country, this, uh, visas for skilled people. As a developing country, that is insane because you need, you can't say, well, we'll, we'll get some guy who's uh, got a matric from a rural school and put him into a, a brain surgeon's job. You need a brain surgeon. And the consequence of that is, uh, is, is the change in bureaucracy, looking at, at that in particular is one of the areas they focused on. So, yeah, I, I left there feeling we've got a, a safe pair of hands. Uh, the, the socialist ideology, which has been so ruinous to South Africa, is it, well, at least being adapted, uh, by bringing in the private sector. It was very interesting how he ended, Nadia. He, his very last point was, you know, I know a lot about the party, clearly, because of his job uh, at, in the ANC. I'm not quite sure yet about, about Treasury. But what I can tell you is that within the ANC, since 1992, we've seen an important role for the private sector. It's in our policy documents. And that is opening the door to say, in the future, we'll see much more of this public-private partnership, which is the obvious but sometimes political ideology has gotten in the way. So one of the few positives for our economy has been the commodity run. What plans are in place if this falls? Well, uh, what I also liked about uh, about the whole planning was that there's no uh, presumption that commodity prices are going to continue at this level. Uh, the the forecasts, in fact, have for both coal and iron ore to decline in price, uh, platinum to stay stable, and those are the three big ones. Uh, that's where that's what bailed us out, or the bailed uh, Treasury out with that 128 billion. By the way, they spent 108 billion of that already, uh, overspent. So it just shows how necessary it is to get these windfalls now and then. At least there's 20 billion of a windfall that is sitting on the side there. But the the approach to fix that or to address that is to fix Transnet. Because if you can fix the, 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 the rail lines or the transport lines by bringing in the private sector, letting them run trains on the Transnet lines, then you will have a, you'll be able to get the volumes out of the country. Uh, perhaps the prices do come off, but at least you can offset that by having a greater volume of, of exports. That's part of the plan there. But they've, they've, uh, Predicted their predictions are very conservative. Uh, they've also been helped a heck of a lot by a technical issue. Stats South Africa has rebased the economy. It's added about another 500 billion rands uh, to the size of the economy. And when you use numerators and denominators, you know that if you've got a bigger uh, size of the economy, then as a percentage, your debt as a percentage of the economy looks smaller. So does your uh, budget deficit which would have been 9.3%, but now suddenly is only 7.8%. Okay, 7.8 is real bad, but it's uh, it's not as bad as 9. Uh, and it is also closer to getting down to the international norm of where we should be of around 4. So, uh, and then is uh, the debt-to-GDP ratio, which is something that international investors look at as well. That's now down to, it's apparently going to peak at around 78%. Whereas under the old old numbers, it would have been 90%. So they've been helped by that too. But all around, uh, you know, we're in a hole. 
Uh, we've got lots of things to do. Have we got the right people who are going to address it in our country without taxing us to death? I think so. And just for the purposes of this restraint that he referred to, do they have any plans or did the budget indicate in some ways that they would either, you know, bring into line the bloated government salaries or at least not just continue to sort of senselessly bail out SOEs that, you know, at the expense of the country? Well, he spoke about tough love for SOEs and about some rats and mice, as he termed it, SOEs going bankrupt or letting them go. Uh, that does not include Eskim and Transnet, who he st- singled out as being too big to fail, effectively. Uh, but they are going to be fixed, if you like, by bringing in the private sector. So you'll look at, when you look at Eskim, you don't, you don't look at Eskim, you look at electricity supply. When you look at Transnet, you don't look at the, the, the SOE itself, you look at uh, using the rail infrastructure. However, uh, the other S, the other state-owned enterprises, which uh, might be going cap in hand to government, would in future find it far, far more difficult to get money given to them. Remember, we as taxpayers are committed to giving Eskom 230 billion rands over 10 years, uh, and that only started two years ago. We're now sitting at already, we've, they've already got 130 billion rand, but with the idea being changed, they'll get the rest of it to help with debt and interest payments, but no more after that. And that's really a, a big breakthrough. It's almost like, it's almost like there's been a bit of a rock bottom here that, uh, the idealism that existed within the ANC has now been replaced by pragmatism. And the pragmatism does suggest to us that the future, uh, things will be a lot more responsibly managed and sensibly managed. When it comes to this restraint, that's all to do with government salaries and there, uh, what we saw with Tito Mboweni was he came up with clever ideas, but they didn't work. The first clever idea was uh, early retirement. That didn't work. Uh, nobody in the public sector, the workers just never picked up on early retirement. They were quite happy staying in the jobs as long as they could. Um, so that didn't work out. Then the next thing he said was, we are going to restrain uh, in the budget this year. We're not going to pay the the uh, any increases to the public sector, whatever uh, when people get increases, it'll be offset by natural attrition, people who resign and die and whatever. Well, that didn't work out so good because in the latest negotiations, uh, Godongwana admitted that there was 20 billion rand extra on top of February's budget. And February was only, what, seven months ago, uh, which has to be paid now in public sector wages. So that's the big uh, story. Public sector wages in South Africa make up 35 cents in every rand we pay in tax. And there's another 20 cents on top of that that goes to repay interest on debt that has been created because the public sector servants have been paid too much. Uh, and they are the major reason why these, the state's expending has gone up 8.8% a year for the last 13 years. So you put it all together and the, the elephant in the room is how do you stop these public servants? How do you get them more efficient? And how do you stop them from uh, receiving huge salaries? It's going to be a political, it's a political Gordian knot. Uh, however, it is something that you need to have someone with political clout, political capital. And from everything that I saw today, uh, there was no nerves uh, from Gordonguana. He did actually go to a couple of the reporters who, who were angling for a few things like, uh, how's the, is the government going to stop the, uh, the, the, the emergency grant? 
COVID emergency grant in March, which it's been extended to. And it was almost like some were trying to put words in his mouth. You know, how can you stop this for the poor people? And his response was, this is a poor uh, a budget for the poor. And of course it is. It's 60% a social wage. But the government has got a certain amount of money, uh, a certain envelope. It's going to spend 1.9 trillion. That was agreed by cabinet. It's likely to get in 1.5 trillion. It, it's got a pretty good understanding of that, but it's got a spending of 1.9 trillion. If it wants to spend more, it's got to borrow and it can't borrow because uh, our borrowing is already out of control. So if it wants to continue by giving largesse to certain sectors of the community, then it's going to have to take away from some other sectors. So it's, he's, he's laid the ground rules. There isn't, it isn't just a moving target like with Zuma, who decided, oh, at, at, the, at a whim, like P.W. Boerter, by the way, did the same thing, decided on a whim uh, that, in his case, tertiary education needed to be funded, so he would, he would throw billions at it, or say billions would be put at it, and the guys at Treasury had to just, just uh, somehow balance the books. With uh, Godangwana, he has said that, sure, the guys at Treasury will balance the books, will always balance the books with the scorers. But cabinet has to make these decisions. And if cabinet does that, they must go in with their eyes open because there are some hard choices that we need to make as a nation. And you can't just keep on spending. And then just to close off with, do you think that in some way he was able to, with the budget presentation, potentially convince, convince foreign investors that it's not just downhill from here? That they can yeah. sort of like re-look at South Africa as an investment destination. It's a very good question, that Nadia, and it is one that I think will be occupying a lot of minds. It's a short discussion. When Trevor Manuel brought in the uh, what was first of all called the mini budget, and, and now uh, what's it, the M midterm budgetary uh, presentation uh, speech, uh, it's supposed to be something for debate. It's supposed to be an update. It's not supposed to be a policy statement. And I asked him, uh, I said exactly that to him. I said, you know, your credibility is shot in, in Treasury because you've been overshooting on the spending for years and you come up with these clever ideas and they don't work. So why would anybody give you credibility now? If you remember in the February budget, Tito Mbouini was talking about the hippo's jaws uh, with spending going up and revenues going down. And you had this awful situation. Yeah, eating well, our children's inheritance. Indeed. And, and, yeah. and but th thankfully, it's not just us. Thankfully, this is something that's happened all over the world. So uh, international uh, community understands this and realizes that we aren't alone. It's how you manage it from here. And that's where the the uh, the real big story has to come in. And the mini budget was was almost a statement of intent. And the statement of intent that came out for me was: we realize as the ANC that we can't fix. We've been focusing on the wrong things. We've been trying to fix it ourselves. We've been trying to control and uh, command and control, and we haven't got it right. And the country has suffered, and we've suffered in the polls. In fact, he made a mention, Godangwana, about uh, the the election results. And he mm -hmm. said it's going to be quite nice now because one of the burning issues in South Africa are the municipalities, which have been massively badly managed and are, are a big hole for taxpayers, which we haven't really gotten around to funding yet. A lot of them are sitting there with massive debt, 
which they'll never be able to repay, or certainly is going to take them a long time. He said, now this is a joint problem uh, for all the parties, because with the results of the election, everybody's going to be involved in this. And those are, are positive steps. Everything in our country is intertwined. It's like a like an ecosystem, a network of of uh, a spider's web that you you tickle on the one side and it'll have an impact elsewhere. And this mini budget shows that the ANC has taken cognizance of its mismanagement of the economy, not just during the Zuma eras, uh, but subsequent to that as well, with a focus on the policies that just don't work and have been shown to be outdated, especially due the, through the amplification of, of uh, what happened in the uh, in the most recent past with a pandemic. Everything's accelerated. So if you were on the wrong path, you just got to your destination a lot quicker. And we're at that destination now. And when we while we're there, we need to, first of all, realize that we are there, that we are in trouble, and then secondly, to start addressing it. And I got the feeling that, I mean, we, I've heard so many happy tales and so many <laughs> promises and so many you know, gambles that have come from this government. And if I've heard them, the international investors have heard them 10 times more because they, uh, finance ministry go on to roadshows and they're going to sit with people in London, New York, Frankfurt and uh, wherever. They don't have the credibility anymore to carry on as before and to keep repeating the promises that have always been broken. And as a consequence of that, they need to try something new. And what they're trying or what they are going towards is not only rational and logical, but it also is something that as a foreign investor, you'll look at this and you'll say, okay, whew, thank heavens. Finally, South Africa's woken up. And man, isn't that a country with huge potential? It's worth taking a chance on. This thought leadership feature was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs mesh to life insurance that changes as your life changes. I'm Joshua Roberts of Biz News, and with me today for today's Market Insights is Counterpoint Value Fund Manager, Pit Fulian. Pit, lots to talk about as per usual. Remgro with an interesting deal regarding CIVH, uh, one of their holding companies, and Vodacom. Have you had time to make sense of it? I've had a look at it. So I, I you know, I'm not, uh, I think it's, it's not a, 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 it's a complicated transaction. Um, one will have to spend a bit more time on studying it than I have had time to do so, so far. They only announced it yesterday. Um, it's interesting. Um, I think it is the way of the future, but it is also a very capital intensive business. And I'm not sure what the long-term returns on capital is in that business. Uh, one would have to see. But uh, I think it's premature to make any any um, any firm comment on it at this point. Uh, I'm not in a position to do so. I just spoke to Remgro Chief Investment Officer Peter Ace. I was asking him about the st- sustainability of the demand for fiber, especially from a household perspective. Do you think that more and more people will continue to go back to the offices and this new normal will be something that subsides with time? Um, I think it's going to be a mix. Uh, I think, it's, again, it's too early to say, but I, I do think that there, there has been some behavioral change. In other words, you'll probably be spent some time at the office and some time at home. Um, but there is no doubt that uh, there will be increased demand for fiber nationally, uh, whether people go to the office or not, um, because more and more uh, 
one more items will be connected in the net household items will be connected in the net i mean everything will be connected and one needs high speed fiber to op operate those uh, things efficiently so i think the demand for the product will be there um i don't think demand is the issue here it is what is the cost to put in and can you earn a return on that capital cost that's that's a key question which is not clear to me yet at this point Swift change to what's happening in the U.S. Inflation numbers out yesterday, scorching hot at 6.2%, a percent higher than our inflation here locally. Uh, Pete, can you just tell us what that means for growth stocks versus value stocks and why it might benefit yeah. one and um, not good for the other? Yeah. So the theory goes, and again, um, the future is uncertain, so this is not a forecast, but the theory goes that uh, growth stocks um, and specifically tech stocks are valued by discounting all their future cash flows by uh, a discount rate, which is linked to the interest rate. And the lower the interest rate is, the higher the present value of those cash flows is. Um, and value stocks are also valued that way. The difference is um, if value stocks cash flows all sit in the immediate future. And most value stocks don't have a long runway of growth ahead of them. So you're only discounting three or four or five years worth of cash flows. Whereas with a stock like Microsoft or Apple, you might be discounting 20 or 30 or 40 years of cash flows. And if you do that with a low interest rate, it gives you a big present value. If that interest rate were to increase, however, it brings down that present value quite dramatically. Um, whereas with a value company or value stock, where the cash flows are right here in front of you for the next few years, any change in the interest rate that you use to discount those cash flows make almost no difference to the present value of those cash flows. So that's you know. So the theory goes that growth stocks are highly uh, the value of growth stocks are highly linked to interest rates. The lower they are, the the more the higher the value of growth stocks are, and as interest rates increase, uh, all else being equal, the value of those stocks or valuation of those stocks might decline. Uh, it's too early to tell whether that's going to work out in practice because interest rates have not really gone up. Despite inflation in the U.S. being at 6.2%, long bond yields, 10-year yields in the U.S. is still at 1.5%, and short rates are still hovering around zero. Um, so inflation has gone up a lot. Uh, it looks like it's not uh, transitory, um, but interest rates are still uh, at grassroots levels. So, you know, that theory has not been tested yet. It's too early to say. Yeah, very interesting to see what the future holds. Also with these supply chain disruptions and um, see if that becomes a thing of the past. Let's just turn to the mining industry for a second. Lots happening there. Royal Buffer King, uh, the subject of lots of corporate action. It is all a bit confusing. Can you simplify it for us, Pete? So I, I think what's happening here is that uh, um, there is a fight for resource. Um, I think uh, platinum companies see the need for the metal they produce uh, increasing over the long term. Impala has reasonably short life of mine, um, uh, whereas RB Platts has just developed a couple of new mines. They have a longer life, more reserves, and I think uh, they lie adjacent to Impala. In fact, Impala mines on RBP ground. They're so close to each other. Um, there's also issues with the smelters, there's capacity there. there. So there's lots of synergies between Impala and RBP, uh, whereas Northern, um, there's no synergies, but I guess they just want to use the cash they have on hand on the balance sheet because they've been generating a lot of cash, like all the platinum companies over the past while. 
So it seems that they just want to stop Impala from getting hold of RBP, and they've taken out uh, um, Royal Buffer King Holdings stake, 32% stake of RBP. Um, that means they don't have to make an offer to all the other shareholders, which leaves them out in the cold. So it's a very interesting situation developing there. Um, I do think that the signs are starting to happen. It's still early days yet. It's not there yet, but the signs are starting to happen that um, with this corporate activity heating up in the platinum sector, that maybe valuations are starting to become a bit full. Um, but as I said, I think it's still early in the early in the cycle. It's not yet top of cycle. It's uh, but uh, we're closer that we. I, I would say we uh, between nine and twelve o'clock rather than six and nine o'clock. You know, is how I would describe it. Purple Group out with results. Pete, I know you don't write off any company on the JSC, no matter how big or small. Got a huge retail investor presence. Is this something yeah. that you look at? And then from a brokerage perspective, is this kind of a business you like to invest in? I, I, I think it's a fantastic business. It has made investing in the stock market accessible for a lot of people. It's made it easy. And there, you know, it's easy equity is the name of the business. Uh, it's great. Uh, they're trying to do the same with property, which I think is fantastic. Um, so what Charles Savage and his team has achieved there uh, is, is, is fantastic. Uh, the problem I have as an investor is that at 250 a share, I think you're paying for a lot of what they still are going to be doing, which I think will be good things over the next few years, but you're already paying for that. So I, I don't see value in, you know, in the business, in the stock market price. I see it's a highly valuable business. It's a great business. I'm not sure it's a great investment at this point in time. But, you know, that might change in the future. Let's see what Charles and his team does. Uh, they've achieved a hell of a lot in, in, over the space of the past few years, and I think they still have a long runway ahead of them. Um, so good business, great business, in fact. Um, maybe not such a great investment, but time will tell. Retailer Fushini also out with results, much improved, although versus a very low base of COVID last year. Is yeah. this a company you follow or have an opinion on? I mean, discretionary retail in South Africa is a tough industry to be involved in. I, I have an opinion on a lot of stuff. My opinion just might not be worth very much uh, a lot of Tell the time. Tell us anyway, uh, please. So I do. <laughs> so so I, I, you know, again, I think Fushini, the Fushini Group is a good business. It's a well-run business. Um, it was early getting into online sales. Um, it did the least bad offshore transactions of all the retailers. So I think it's 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 a it's it's a good business, um, but again I struggle with valuation. I it, it you know I'm a value investor, so I like to buy around for 50, fifty cents. And in the case of a company like uh, Purple or Easy Equities, I think it's a great business, but you're not paying you're paying one and fifty for possibly four rands worth of value there. Where Fushini Group, you're probably paying a rand for a rand, so you're getting you know what you pay for, and there's nothing excess in there. So Again, it's not something I would invest my client's money in at this point in time. Um, but I'm keeping eyes on it because I think it's a good, well-run business and maybe one gets an opportunity at some point. Lastly, Ascendus uh, activist investor or representative Harry Smith was added to the board or appointed to the board recently. Is this a win for retail investors or simply a once-off? Well, I'm, you know, it's, you know, what does a win for retail investors mean? Um are they going to make money out of Ascendus? Well, you know, from where it's come from, they're losing money. I, you know, uh, hopefully going forward from here, they'll make money. Um, 
I think the strategy is sensible in what they've done. They sold the offshore parts of the business uh, for, I, I, I guess, a reasonable price. Um, so, so the reason why Ascendus is where it is isn't because of current management. and uh, It's because of the previous board and previous management who massively overpaid for mediocre assets uh, using debt. And that got the business into trouble. Uh, and Mark Sardi and his team did very well in cleaning up that mess. So it's a tough job. Uh, and from here on forward, I think if they do the sensible things, uh, minority shareholders could make money out of it. Uh, it's possible. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why... South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is Rem Gross Chief Investment Officer, Peter Ace. Peter is also the chairman of CIVH, so definitely best place to unpack this deal between Remgro, CIVH, and Vodacom. Peter, it's all a bit complicated. Could you explain in layman's terms what's happening here? Hi, Justin. Yeah, let me start in the beginning. So firstly, you get different types of fiber. You get fiber that connects um, base stations for mobile networks. You get fiber that you get to the office to get access to your internet. And then more recently, you also get fiber that connects your home to the internet. And what's nice about fiber is it is uh, you can have uncapped internet. You can have as much as you want. It's not like um, mobile data where you have speed limits. With fiber, you can really have true uncapped internet. So what we've been focusing on in the last couple of years is to make uh, fiber FTTH affordable to the masses. So we ran a trial uh, about 18 months ago in Mitchell's Plain, where we introduced a product called Vuma Reach. And Vuma Reach is a prepaid uncapped fiber that's affordable. And we had such great success with it that we decided Let's make this big. Let's take this across the country and not just give uh, good internet to the sentence of the world, but take it to Soweto, take it to Alexandra and really connect the uh, South African population to the internet and in such a way have a positive impact on the economy. For example, the digital divide. During COVID, we saw it. Many kids in more wealthy suburbs could have access to uncapped internet and do their YouTube education from home, whereas a big part of the country on the other side of the digital divide couldn't do it. But with this product, you can really um, give it to the masses. Peter, what is Remgro's new effective stake in Vimital and Dark Fiber Africa, the underlying businesses of CIVH? Before the Vodacom transaction, it sat at around 57%. What's the new effective stake from Remgro's perspective? So how it works is Remgro is not the only shoulder. We've got 57% of this fiber business. So after competition commission approval and also uh, ICASA regulatory approval, the new shielding will be CIVH, which is the holding company where we have the 57%. We'll have 70% and Vodacom will have 30%. And Vodacom gets to the 30% by putting in money into the business, but they're also selling all their fiber assets to DFA and Vumatel. And that's what gives us a reach to a much bigger part of the country and will allow us to take fiber to places where it's never been before. 
So Vodacom's putting in 6 billion rand. Is this on top of the 4 billion rand raised through rights issues of CIVH recently? That's almost 10 billion rand of capex for growth. Is this indicative of demand? Yeah, it's, after COVID, we've seen everything change. People are now working more and more from home. People want to have Zoom, YouTube from home. And this product, Fiber to the Home, will allow that. So the money that we raised earlier on was to start accelerating this rollout to meet the demand. Um, and on top of that, the vertical money will just allow us to reach that end goal of democratizing the internet in South Africa even sooner. Before the pandemic started and there wasn't this permanent shift in lifestyle that you're alluding to, there were rumors that Dremgrow was thinking of exiting its position in CIVH. Is this true? No, that was fake news. We would never accept this. We have a big dream for um, Vumatel and DFA to really make a difference in South Africa. So it's not just about the business. There's also good in it. I've personally been to places like Michel's Plain where we rolled out the Vumarish. And to walk into someone's house and see them in their back room start a business from home using their uncapped um, broadband connection to the internet, it's just amazing to experience it. And to walk into the next house and you have a grandma sitting there with her TV on the wall watching Netflix, it is really a great experience. And that is part of what we want to achieve. CIVH was valued at around $27 billion in Remgro's last financials that they released. Now this deal with Vodacom, are there perceived synergies? synergies? Does the value of CIVH immediately uh, go up as a result of this deal? No, there's a lot of hard work uh, left. So in the next two years, we will have to invest and um, take fiber to as many houses as we can. So the, how the deal is structured because we need competition commission approval, um, that can take any time between 12 months and 18 months. Typically, we've valued the transaction at a future date. So when we get approval, regulatory approval, which is the ICASA and competition commission, the business will be valued at that point. So the six billion you're referring to could be more and it will most probably be more. Um, and in the Vodacom release, they have alluded to a number. So the number that you see in the media, that's the future value indicative of when the transaction could be completed. Yes. Peter, do you think this is a permanent shift in lifestyle or do you think more businesses will be going back to the office and therefore household Wi-Fi and fiber not necessarily keeping up or this demand being that sustainable? Uh, firstly, I think a lot of it will be permanent, but to me, it's not just about that. It is about really the digital divide in South Africa, where you cannot be without internet. It is just like water, electricity. You need those three things, water, electricity, and the internet to be part of South Africa, be part of the world, be part of the economy. And this will start in a small way to help education. And in the long term, that will have a positive spin-off into the economy. Yeah, so big vision, big dreams, but it's very much achievable. Peter, you're the chief investment officer of Remgro. Is Remgro pivoting from more of a traditional financial services kind of related business into a more technology-focused business? No, we have different platforms. We have not just – we're a diversified investment holding company. So, yes, we had a big um, stake in the first-round group, but that was unbundled. We also have investment into the healthcare space through MediClinic. 
uh, we have distill, we have many other businesses, so not just technology. And yes, all of those businesses are listed. In terms of unlisted, the most exciting business is CIVH. Would you say so? Yeah, definitely. In the long term, it would be, it is one of our goals to have more and more um, unlisted investments within the Remgro stable. Um, so yes, that is part of the strategy. But CIVH, because of where the world is, because of where South Africa is, and because of the demand, we see this as one of our growth assets. Is there any other corporate action to come out of the Remgro stable uh, in the next few months? You'll have to watch the space. We are continuously working on exciting things here at Remgro. I'm Justin Rowe Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is Purple Group and Easy Equity CEO, Charles Savage. Charles, very highly anticipated numbers, which have been well-received by your investors and the market as a whole. What were some of the landmark standouts? Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, they are good numbers. I think, you know, the landmark standouts were certainly those that were inside the Easy Equities group. Um, you know, some big numbers there, 1.2 million registrations, over 700,000 active accounts, you know, profitability growing at triple-digit numbers, revenues at triple-digit. So lots, lots of really big, strong, good numbers in the Easy Equities group. Um, and I guess delivering on the promises we made last year that uh, this business, the growth that we'd experienced in the prior year was going to compound further into the next year. So I think we've we sort of hit expectations potentially slightly above where people thought we were. Easy Equities has really created a brand of its own. Everyone loves the product and the platform, and it's well spoken about amongst investors and users alike. Are there plans to rebrand the Purple Group and its subsidiaries, such as GT247 Trading, Empress Assets Management, into easy products? Yeah, look, I think we have to. Um, you know, I think that the group isn't big enough to sit and run disparate uh, brands and also, ha also have disparate interest groups um, that aren't aligned with a single brand and single purpose statement. So I think the time to do that is now. Um, to realign the group around a single purpose and brand. It'll create efficiencies for us in the operating structure, um, but also give us the leverage in that distribution base to push more products and services that have a very strong brand familiarity with that audience. So the time is definitely now to do it. Are there plans to turn GT247 into a Robinhood-like trading platform? You know, it is already. If that's the funny thing, is that you know that is essentially what GT is. It's sort of more like Robinhood than it is like Easy. But the plans aren't. The plans are to enable a safe destination for people to trade on Easy Equities. The service provided to those those trading products will be GT two four seven, but the customer experience and the custodians of those customers will be Easy Equities. So if you like, GT is going to become the prime broker to Easy Equities' trading aspirations. And GT's got a significant amount of brand equity in the sophisticated day trading space. So we'll keep it for that fit-for-purpose vehicle, but it will continue to become a, a smaller, smaller part of our future aspirations. Easy Crypto has been a big hit. Notable tailwinds with robust crypto prices over the past year. Can you explain the 50 million rand fair value adjustment in layman's terms and not accounting terms? Yeah, so, you know, we had an option to acquire 51% of the business uh, at a nominal value, five rand, uh, should we meet certain distribution objectives. And simply we had to get somewhere around, I think, 100 million rand of capital invested in Easy Crypto Tech. Um, 
that obviously got big on us in the last six months. So it wasn't something that the option had very little value in it uh, when we looked at it at six month period. But you know, given what's happened in crypto markets uh, over the last six months and the incredible run they've had, our auditors were, we can't ignore the value of this option anymore. Um, and the board had made the decision to exercise the option in August. And so it was time to commensurately revalue what we thought that option was now worth, considering we got it for naught. So really, it's just a write-up of what 50% or 51% of easy crypto is worth. Um, we think it's a really conservative valuation. We're very comfortable that it's defendable. I mean, in the last 12 months, that business produced about 8 million uh, rand of EBITDA. So if you put you know, 100% enterprise values around 100 million uh, for a crypto business, a PE of like 12, you know, nice and cheap. So nice conservative write-up. But we, we, we are now going to exercise the option and it will be consolidated into the group's income statement in the next 12 months. How's the progress going with easy properties? So it's doing so well. I mean, you know, at year end, we said we had 35,000 customers. Uh, I was in a meeting today and we checked in. It's now got 51,000 customers. Um, it's now, raised, uh, last year on average, it raised 20 million a month. Uh, sorry, 10 million a month, 120 million over 12 months. Uh, this year, it's on a run rate of 30 million a month. So it's going to raise you know, north of 360 million. And we're not really in uh, hunting season yet. Hunting season for us is kind of January, February, March, when everyone's you know looking to maximize their tax uh, efficiency. So you know, my guess, by the end of the year, it's going to be raising 40 million a month. End of its financial year being August, 40 million a month. So it's accelerating as expected at an exponential rate. And our investors are loving it. Just having so much fun with it. It's such a different asset class uh, and one that they've never had access to in the way that we've delivered it. As Easy Properties grows, will it look to invest in other property sectors besides residential? Yeah, so we'd lined up our first commercial property, which was going to be a petrol station uh, in Gauteng. Um, we just haven't managed to get the due diligence done properly, so that it's not, that's going to be delayed. It'll definitely happen early next year. We're looking at international property and have been for a while. Um, we were hoping to surprise investors with a little Christmas present of international property uh, this year. But again, there's just some friction in that process. But 100%, you'll get the first commercial property opportunity early next year and the first international property as well early next year. What are the plans around the asset management arm of the Purple Group Stable? Yeah, you know, we've been building our track record in that business. I mean, as you know, kind of easy you know, asset management is... You're not going to raise any assets until such time as you've got a credible track record. Last year, um, uh, the team won a, a Raging Bull Award for Best Global Manager over three years. That has significantly raised the profile of the business uh, and it's starting to, you know, starting to be taken seriously by the industry. Um, so, you know, we expect that business to start growing at good rates, but it's a very slow build. Asset management is a slow build business. Like, you know, it's not something that we're expecting to, you to see in our income statement in the next year or two. It's something that over the next 10 years, we'll create a very substantial asset management business uh, alongside Easy Equities. Definitely going to rebrand and align it with the group. So, you know, you can expect it to be changed from Emperor Asset Management to Easy Asset Management. Uh, and we will also recognize that our customers want more than just quantitative asset management strategies. So we're partnering some of the best in class managers to run mandates under that Easy Asset Management brand. And we will have some exciting announcements, uh, announcements in January in that regard. Last two questions, Charles. Let's just start with the two-rand plan now that it's in review. It's in your rear view mirror. 
When was it implemented? And just tell us a little bit more about it before we get to the 10 Rand plan. Yeah, so it was implemented in 2015. It was a, a four-year plan to get from 30 cents to to uh, two Rand. And you know, every business had its milestones or key performance indicators that it needed to achieve. Um, none of the business achieved any of those indicators except for Easy Equities did triple what it was supposed to do. Well, thanks for being with us today and through the whole of this week. We'll be back again with the Biz News Power Hour, same time, same place on Monday. But tomorrow night on Fine Music Radio in Cape Town, it's Carrie's Corner where we have a look at wine. Uh, I'm sure that if you've got uh, the Cape spirit, that's going to be something that you just don't want to miss. From our team here at Biz News of Nadia Swat, Justin Rowe Roberts, Jared Neves and our sound engineer, Dudu Masuku, yours truly, Alec Hogg. It's been our pleasure. I look forward to being in your company again and next week. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News. <laughs>